Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Alex, your familiar stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Amita Baviskar from the Institute of Economic Growth in Delhi, India, a job she describes as letting her research anything she wants, if only we were all so lucky. Amita received her PhD in sociology from Cornell and has subsequently been a visiting scholar at several institutions, including Oxford, Stanford, Cornell, Yale, the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of Cape Town. In 2010, she won the Infosys Prize for Social Sciences for her work on social and environmental movements in India. Her book, In the Belly of the River, Tribal Conflicts Over Development in the Narmada Valley, examines the anti-dam movement in India and was a landmark publication for its analysis of social movements in the country at the time. However, it also generated some controversy among the activists she worked with, and we discussed this in the interview, both how it happened and what advice she would have for others entering similarly politically charged environments. I interviewed Amita during the Australian Anthropological Society conference last year, just after she had given one of the keynotes. In it, she implored anthropologists to talk to a wider audience and engage in debates and work that was meaningful to those outside our discipline. As a student heading into academia myself, this really resonated with me, and we talk about what advice she has for early career researchers on the topic later in the interview. Finally, we discuss Amita's current work around industrial foods in India, particularly the ubiquitous Maggi noodles. These are small-serve, pre-packaged foods, the kind whose silver plastic wrappers scream modernity. At the same time, they are also value-neutral foods in an Indian context riven by caste distinction. Amita discusses how, in not being associated with a particular religion or caste, they take on a whole host of new meanings for those who eat them. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insights on today's interview. Without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Amita Baviskar. I work on what I like to call the cultural politics of environment and development. Mm-hmm. What that means is that I look at conflicts over resources, which are often also conflicts over different systems of values and identities. And I look at the kinds of political actions that people engage in to meaningfully deal with what matters to them, what makes life worthwhile. So... What might be an example of one of these conflicts? Well, the first bit of research I did Mm -hmm. was in central India, in the valley of the river Narmada, which was the epicenter of a really big controversy because the government was going to build a large dam, which it has actually gone on and completed. And the dam displaced very large populations, hundreds and thousands of 
families of very small indigenous communities. The word used in India is Adivasis. Mm -hmm. And for these Adivasis, no amount of compensation for the loss of their homes, their forests, their community would actually rehabilitate them. So we see there a conflict in terms of who has a right to decide what should happen with this land and with this river. It's a conflict about different visions of development. Mm -hmm. For the government, a large dam is a way in which you can take irrigation to areas which don't have assured rainfall. It's a way of uh, taking electricity to cities, to factories. And it's also a way of, they say, controlling floods and managing water better. But for people who have been at the sacrificial end of these kinds of large projects, people who have had to give up their land and their way of life in order to make way for these gigantic schemes. In fact, this form of development actually means the destruction of everything that matters to them. So the conflict is at the level of values. What is development? Does development mean welfare for the most vulnerable populations? Or does it mean that rich people go on becoming richer because farmers who are powerful get water that allows them to grow more chemical-intensive crops like sugarcane, like cotton, and the disparities which exist in India get wider and wider. So those are the kinds of really hard questions about what India should be. For sure, that's really interesting. So when you say the Adivasi might have a different conception of development, what sort of things might they actually look to? So a lot of Adivasis are really desperately poor. So for them, development might mean something as modest as being sure that their family will eat six months from now, being able to afford a better house, better lifestyle. Except that now all those questions are complicated because of the direction in which consumption is going. So for a lot of Adivasi households, the man may decide it's better to have a mobile phone than milk for my children. Mm -hmm. Might decide that we need to save money in order to have a motorcycle than, you know, save money for investing in, say, education or improving the land. So that conversation about what development might mean and how different people have different visions of development is actually vitiated or distorted by the dominant model of development that all of us are influenced by. So when we talk about Adivasi alternative ways of being, then mm -hmm. one has to look at some of their traditional practices, which have always emphasized, for instance, the idea of reci reciprocity, hmm. that to accumulate wealth is in some ways selfish and it's only when you share that wealth with others that you accrue goodwill, you accrue social and political power and status. So there's an ethic of sharing, of non-competition, which is quite different from the dominant rat race that people are increasingly being pushed into. There's also the, the way in which Adivasi ethics focus on self reliance and self-sufficiency, mm -hmm. on being able to gather a whole series of different kinds of things from the land, from the forest, and uh, you know, brilliantly, innovatively using them in order to create a sort of a mosaic of livelihood practices. That has now shrunk to mean that you work on the land for three months, and then you go off and you work as wage laborers. 
in other parts of the country on construction sites in agricultural fields and so on so even the form of knowledge where you knew that this little bit of land should be used for growing this or this particular tree can yield this fiber which you can then use to make this kind of rope and this rope is different from the other kind of rope you need for something else i mean there was just tremendously locally sensitive information and knowledge that people used in order to be able to optimize their relationship with the environment in a way that also then allowed them to take time off so the adivasi calendar the agricultural calendar the ritual calendar traditionally has been one of periods of work marked by periods of rest where you celebrate festivals and weddings and you drink and you have a good time whereas now the dominant mode that they are being increasingly socialized into is you work 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 all through the year you earn money it's still not enough because you've got more needs than you had earlier so you work some more and um, you know people are exhausted but they think that that's the way to prosper so there are ways of being that adivasis know of from their elders um that with a little bit of help they can help they can actually revive and rebuild in a way that is more in keeping with uh, the current pressures on them but that requires a kind of longer conversation but it also requires breathing room you can't have that conversation unless people are free a little bit from the daily grind of trying to earn a living um so they can actually you know catch their breath and think and reflect on how they used to be and what they are now and what they want to be in the future. Hmm that's really interesting. And so then when you say breathing room are you seeing any attempts by the Adivasi to instigate and try and get this space for reflection or is that just sort of an ideal that we'd hope for? I think there are small groups working at the grassroots with adivasis as well as with other small farmers communities to try and create that breathing space where people can actually think about what their practices have been how they've changed and the direction in which they want to go and how they must then change what they're doing right now it's happening in small measures but i think these are significant so for instance there's a lot of discussion now around the crops that farmers grow the older crops were varieties that were more hardy they could you know tolerate drought much better they weren't as high yielding as the new hybrids but then the new hybrids need a lot of money because you have to you know pump in fertilizers pesticides a whole lot of inputs that cost people money and that might not actually pay off in the end so there's now talk of going back to that low risk but also low yield economy of the older crops but now these are groups of uh, farmers organizations that are trying to get higher value from these crops so in elite circles in india it's now become kind of fashionable to eat millets mm-hmm. because you know that's high fiber it's organic often so um new markets are being found for the kinds of things that adivasi farmers grow mm-hmm. much more accessible is the demand that these kinds of millets should be offered a minimum support price as the government does for wheat and rice mm-hmm. that would mean that farmers are assured that these crops will you know get them a decent return and there's also a demand that these nutritious millet varieties and cereals should be included in the public distribution system where the government gives subsidized food to school children but also f- to households to consume at home these are all ways in which 
one can make sure that there's a revival of traditional forms of agriculture and a way of life organized around that form of agriculture. That's really nice because that actually um, moves into some of the themes you've talked about in your keynote in that here is the world, India, crying out for certain things. Now, my question, I suppose, is do you see a place for anthropologists in this transformation? Anthropologists have been involved since the beginning in these transformations. In fact, some of the most heated debates when India became independent soon after, so after 1947, were to do with the place of Adivasis in India's plan for national development. And there were particular anthropologists like uh, most famously Verir Elwin, who argued that Adivasis have a different ethos, a different culture, and the government should make sure that they're protected in the places where they live, that their lands are not taken away from them, and they're able to therefore sustain their cultural connections with the land. There were others who argued that no, the division of Adivasis from dominant Hindu caste society was a plot by the British to try and divide India and that Adivasis were for all intents and purposes Hindus. So this debate in which Adivasis opposed as one or the other was unfortunately one in which nobody asked the Adivasis what they wanted as you know happens quite often. The anthropologists did play a role in the beginning in trying to frame policies that on the one hand tried to protect Adivasis but at the same time left them open, completely exposed to their lands being taken away from them. Since then, we have a lot of Adivasis who have engaged and mobilized politically to try and fight against what's been happening. And then there's been a wave of anthropologists, including myself, who've been you know, watching these struggles sympathetically, trying to write about them and trying to bring greater attention to the fact that these are struggles which are not just about the particular interests of these extremely vulnerable groups of people, uh, but that these are actually struggles which are about these larger questions of what development is, who is it for, what kind of futures do we want to imagine for ourselves, what kind of vision of justice and equality do we have. So a number of anthropologists have been engaged in supporting these kinds of struggles and working with communities. But it's hard to play that role because often it means that you know you don't really have a paying job that will allow you to do it. So, you know, people are have to figure out ways and means of, of doing this in a way which then, you know, also allows them to do work that they find worthwhile, but also allows them to support themselves. Mm. And that really is a tough question that I think a lot of anthropologists face. What would you suggest to young career anthropologists who perhaps want to make that change, want to yeah. do a, a meaningful anthropology? What would you suggest to them? Yeah, I think one must take one's training in anthropology out into the world. Mm -hmm. And whatever one is doing, there's you know a certain perspective, an anthropological perspective that one can bring to bear as an executive in a you know giant corporation, a school teacher, you know somebody who runs their own business. I think it helps to have an anthropological training because it teaches you to be critical, but at the same time empathetic, to listen and observe and place things in context, and to try and understand across differences. And I think these are really valuable resources, regardless of what you do. 
But having said that, I think if the idea of anthropology as speaking for points of view that have been marginalized and neglected, speaking for all sorts of people who are just getting a rough deal in a world that's now you know, driven by large corporations and what I will call insane states like you know, particular governments in the US, in India, and so on, where there's a rise of authoritarianism that's dangerously supported by a kind of populism as well. I think we have to be even more creative than the people we are up against, and that's a real challenge. But then I would think that what one needs to do is take our anthropological strengths and come together with people who work in different media, radio, you know, create funny little videos, make sure they go viral, make you know, short films, write better, write in ways that engages people's attention. Most of all, I think it's important that we abandon our sort of cerebral, slightly distant and aloof mode of engagement because we think often that's what intellectual work demands and actually combine our minds with thinking about you know, feelings and emotions in a way that is compassionate and respectful. And what I mean by that is that often people will not any longer listen to reason, to rational arguments. But if you can appeal to them on the grounds of the things that they hold valuable, if you can make that connection to their feelings, to their emotions, then one has a greater chance of being able to get through. I see that happening a little bit in India with activists and scholars who are coming together, making videos about um, you know, trying to just overcome the division that's being created between Hindus and Muslims. Um, I see them trying to change that narrative uh, through uh, films, through music, through humor. And increasingly, I think that that's the way to go. During your keynote, you mentioned that your first book, you did a lot of work with activists, but that ended up with some tensions. Yeah. I was wondering if first for, uh, for the audience, you could maybe talk a little bit about what those tensions were and how they came about. I think the main difference that emerged once I'd written my PhD thesis, which then later became a book, was that I was reflecting on the social movement as a kind of political achievement where activists had managed to accomplish something extraordinarily difficult. They brought together two very different groups of people in an alliance. One, these hill Adivasis who were desperately poor, very, very low in the social hierarchy, and these uh, upper caste landowning commercial farmers in the plains. What brought them together was the fact that both sets of people were losing their land to the dam. But in the way in which the movement was represented and perceived in the outer, into the outside world, um, it was a figure of the hill Adivasis, people dressed in loincloths with bows and arrows, making impassioned speeches about, you know, the land is our mother, we feed at her breast. If you take a child away from her mother, you know, the child will die and so on. So, you know, very organic, very rich symbols, which also suggested that these were Adivasis who lived in harmony with nature, that this was a precious bond that 
if broken, would destroy them forever and, and so forth. There was no doubt a grain of truth in all of these political symbols and statements. But the problem was that a lot of Adivasis were no longer in a position to lead ecologically sustainable lives, partly because of state policies which denied them access to lands that they cultivated, a whole host of other issues as well. So you couldn't represent them as ecologically noble savages without actually concealing a lot of the kinds of processes that were undermining and eroding Adivasi li uh, livelihoods. At the same time, the story about these valiant people fighting against the dam left out of the picture the rich farmers who were engaged in precisely the kind of chemical-intensive, water-intensive agriculture that the anti-dam movement was challenging because it was against that form of development. So um, I wrote about these issues because I thought it was important that one understand the rather complex ways in which people, you know, people's lives are embedded in certain kinds of contexts, and we must learn how they negotiate these and, you know, manage to transcend them and come together and ask really important questions, which are also to do with, you know, fighting for their lives. But the fact that I did this was seen by some movement activists as perspective that perhaps gave away too much and that they felt it rendered them vulnerable to criticism from people who were opposed to the movement. So the government could say, oh, you see, you, are, you activists are misrepresenting the situation on the ground and so on. They asked me to not, to not publish my work. And it was really difficult dilemma for me because I felt that I needed to stand by my work, but that at the same time, what was more important was the social movement because, you know, what am I writing for? I have my PhD degree, you know, it's one more book in the world, what difference does it make? But here are people who've devoted their life to trying to stop a dam that's going to displace them. And what right do I have to think that my version of events should, you know, be juxtaposed with this absolutely brave, heroic struggle that they were a part of? I decided to still go ahead and publish because I felt that at the end of the day, the anti-dam movement was big enough and strong enough to actually ride out even the perceived criticism that might come their way after my book was published. Um, to be sure, not very many people read academic books. So I felt, you know, at the end of the day, they have much more control over the media, over their overall image and so on. I can write my little book and some people will find it interesting. And I was pretty sure that most people would not see it as a hostile interpretation of the movement and so on. So I went ahead and published. And the book had a certain amount of attention because it was about this famous movement, right? Mm -hmm. And at that time in India, very few people had written about movements in quite the same way as I had, which was to you know, analyze how things came together. So what happened was that the activists felt betrayed and uh, they were very hurt that I had gone against their wishes. They also felt betrayed because they had allowed me complete access. You know, we were friends. We, you know, shared rooms. We shared our life stories. There, there was a great sense of injury that 
they had. And to some extent, that expressed itself in their trying to then to prevent my having access to people in the valley. The book was in English and inaccessible to most people. And I should have actually worked harder on bringing out a Hindi edition so that they could have read it themselves. But, you know, a lot of people in the villages got the impression that, you know, I had written something bad mm -hmm. about the movement. It took me a long while where I had, you know, I continued going to the valley, spending time with villagers. I wrote a fair bit in the national press, which was, you know, favorable, you know, outright speaking up for defending, representing the movement's point of view and so on. It took a lot of that sort of continually having to show my credentials and prove my uh, support for the cause that eventually allowed people to again accept me as somebody who was on their side rather than somebody who stabbed them in the back. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for sharing that story. It's <laughs> it's, a, it's a really important one to anthropologists, I think, because we, not all of us, but most of us put ourselves in, in positions that are potentially similar. For mm. an anthropologist, either in the writing up stage or maybe even before they're going to the field, who might potentially deal with similar issues, they're looking at activists, they're looking at uh, disenfranchised communities. What advice might you offer? Looking back now, I think the advice that I would offer would be to just think through very carefully why one is motivated to focus on one set of relations and not the other. And in the long run, I think what matters more are the kinds of relationships that one forms with people that one is working with. And to be truthful in those relationships, even when you differ, is the more important thing. So I decided at the time when I was writing my book that to be truthful for me meant being truthful to the villagers with whom I lived rather than to the activists. Mm -hmm. And that was a choice which played out in a certain way. But I have to say that because of that choice, I still go back to the same families with whom I lived 30 years ago. And, you know, it, it's a really warm relationship. I've seen their children grow up. I've seen grandchildren come into the family. It's a bond that I get a lot out of. To people who are going out into the field, I would say think carefully about what's at stake. Is it really important to focus critically on the activists? Or should our point of critique be some other entity, some other institution, you know, some other set of people? I also think that what I didn't have then, which I now realize, is just greater modesty and less of an ego. You know, I saw myself as this, you know, enterprising anthropologist. I should be allowed to say what I want. Otherwise, it's censorship, and I will not buckle down to censorship. You know, there was a lot of, I think, self-indulgent heroics at play, which shouldn't have, have been there. But I think patience and a willingness to, you know, just work persistently on trying to figure these things out would have served me better. I think that's some really sound advice for any of us in that policy field. So you're currently at the Institute of Economic Growth in Delhi. Just to start with, what sort of work do you do there? What does your role currently entail? Yeah, 
I have probably the best job in the world, which is that I get paid money to do whatever I like. It's not bad. It's not <laughs> bad. <laughs> yeah, and so it's it's not something which is going to be around very long because the government's cracking down on these kinds of research institutions where you're paid a salary just to go out and do the research you want to do. Mostly I work alone, so I don't need much by way of funds because I don't have research assistants and so on. You know, I mm-hmm. travel cheap. It, most of the places where I do work, I wouldn't be able to spend money even if I wanted to. So it's easy for me to do what I do. And it's been really lucky that I've had the opportunity to do that. And the fact that we don't have a teaching program makes that flexibility, you know, even wider. Though I miss teaching. There's just something hugely gratifying about that one student out of 40 who comes up and says, oh, you know, that really made me think or that changed how I thought about this thing. So there's just something really rewarding in that. You also mentioned that, um, well, you described your current job as being able to research whatever you want, which sounds like the dream. What have been some of your favorite projects of what you've done in this position? Yeah. Oh, what hasn't been a favorite project? So my attention now is on consumption patterns. Villages, towns, rich people, poor people, everybody's eating industrial foods. So in my work, I'm trying to look at why they eat them, and the answers are really quite different in, in, in different groups and sections of society. And I look at it not just in terms of what it means for nutrition, uh, but actually what it means in terms of people's sense of self. And um, so it's a new line of research for me, but I found that food is something that instantly evokes a lot of interest, everybody wants to talk to you, and everybody has something different and unique to say. Yeah, look, it sounds really fascinating. Would you be able to let us know? You said that these industrial foods have an impact on people's sense of self. Would you be able to give us some examples of these impacts? Yeah. So when I'm talking about instant noodles, I'm also actually talking about a whole class of edible commodities which are packaged and which are processed. So it could be corn chips, it could be, you know, what are called in India glucose biscuits, a whole set of things that are available at very, very low prices to poorer people. This particular marketing phenomenon of selling small quantities of goods at low prices was a huge marketing breakthrough in the 1990s. And it was made possible because of particular kind of packaging technology which, you know, you get these metallized polymer films where big corporations can make sure that their goods make it into the tiniest village shop without losing, you know, they don't spoil and so on. Yeah, exactly. What was remarkable about these goods in the Indian context is that they are not associated with any particular caste or community, but that nice metallic shiny packaging is only the mark of modernity. And for a lot of people who are poor and who belong to lower castes or who happen to be Muslim, their food practices have been the source of a great deal of stigma and discrimination in India. So, as you know, there have been cultural wars, violent ones, around the eating of beef. You know, people look down on Muslims on the grounds that they eat beef. They might not actually do so, but that's how they're labeled. People who eat pork 
often the former untouchable caste because that's the cheapest meat that they can afford are also looked down upon for eating something that's unclean apart from that there's all sorts of other restrictions around who you will accept food from whose company you will sit and have a meal with and food and marriage are the two main enduring ways in which the caste system lives on so what's interesting in the indian context is that these packaged foods junk foods basically are a way of being able to avoid all of this really fraught ground of home cooked food you know who is this community and will i take food from their hands or not etc these few foods are neutral in caste terms and for a lot of people whose diets have traditionally been stigmatized to consume these is a way of saying you know we're as good as everyone else you can't point fingers at what's on our plate because this food is on your plate too and that together with the fact that these commodities are advertised on television and what you see in the advertisements are these you know lovely children dressed in beautiful clean clothes in this lovely house with a beautiful mother and she's making maggi noodles for them you know there are those sorts of associational elements as well that you know we can't have those beautiful clothes and that you know gorgeous mother or that beautiful house but well we can eat maggi too so there's a certain sense of cultural belonging in this larger aspirational consumerist india that these commodities allow and to me those are very important aspects of what makes them so popular so um i don't want to take away from the political economy of fast food and how you know evil and pernicious that is but i do want to say that people make their own meanings out of these commodities and we have to understand those meanings in order to see people not just as you know people who been fooled by capitalism but people who are trying to figure out their own ways out of older systems of caste inequality and oppression of religious difference that they then find you know hard to live with to sort of bring it back to what we were talking about before and about anthropologists being listened to and trying to have an impact do you have an idea of the impact you'd like this research to have is this heading somewhere or is it just you were interested and it's what you felt like talking about this research on food especially on industrial foods i think is important because unlike say in europe or north america and i dare say in australia as well where there's a lot of attention on changing food practices there's a lot of concern around uh what people are eating where it's coming from the conditions under which it's produced in india that conversation is just beginning to start and when you talk to people everybody is anxious but they don't yet have a clear sense of where food's coming from and what conditions it's being produced under so part of my work is just to follow these commodity chains so next after packaged foods i plan to look at chicken which has now emerged as the biggest source of animal protein in india and you know possibly palm oil i haven't yet decided but the idea is to take the conversation which is happening among right to food activists who concentrate primarily on the question of nutrition 
without looking at the culture and social values that people attribute to food and to help people understand better the kinds of transformations that are going on so i think i have a keen interest in influencing the ways in which we think about food so for instance a lot of right to food activists who are committed as i am to the idea that the government must provide subsidized food to people will say that you see we need to have intensive cultivation of wheat and rice because it is those commodities which get produced in large enough quantities to be able to distribute around the country whereas i would say you know we've been too dependent on wheat and rice it's not ecologically sustainable for us and all this effort that's gone into subsidizing wheat and rice has actually been at the cost of the cereals and the nutritious millets that people were growing so what we need to do is you know change agriculture around and create more interest in eating these kinds of cereals and so on so i think that there's a value to this work which can contribute to that larger understanding of what is good to eat what is good to think with to paraphrase mr levi strauss and to actually make a difference in terms of what people actually do get to eat and cook and that's still such a you know basic challenge for so many indians that i think it's a worthwhile project to follow through on yeah absolutely it's a really important project Look, I think we'll leave it there. Sorry, it was a I'm long exhausted. one. Yeah, no, totally fair. But thank yeah. you so so Good, much. And that was it. Me and Dr. Amita Baviskar. Today's episode was produced by me, Alexander Deloya, with help from the other familiar strangers, Julia Brown, Jodie Lee Trembath, Simon Theobald, and Kylie Wong-Dolan. Our executive producers are Deanna Catto and Matthew Fong. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange. Not the Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. For those of you wondering what this anthropology thing is, Jody has just written a blog on exactly that topic. Check it out at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com tweet at tfs tweets or look us up on facebook and instagram music by pete dabro special thanks to nick farrelly will grant martin pierce and maudro thanks for listening and see you in two weeks until next time keep talking strange